0: We are here in the 11FS offices in WeWork Old Gate for episode 41 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you a Bitcoin where art thou is Ripple the security and George Soros gets his hands crypto dirty. Alright, let's get started. Colin G. Platt, how are you? How was Deconomy? And welcome back to the UK.
1: Thank you very much. I'm doing fantastic. It was excellent. I'm still fantastically jet lagged You are wearing a Sentra t-shirt. That's some good swag right there. I, I had to get it. I mean... It was probably the last opportunity on the planet to
0: get Centra Swag. You've got to get the Centra Swag. It's crypto dirty like George Soros. All right. First story this week comes from Cointelegraph. Um, BCH promoting Twitter account at Bitcoin suspended. Internet debates the death of free speech. This had to be the biggest, biggest kind of mass market story this week. A Twitter account got hacked. It tells you everything you need to know about this community.
1: I, I don't know that it's even hacked. Like, So there was at Bitcoin on Twitter, which if you're not following and you're interested in Bitcoin, that's a good place to start. Um, run by the guys, uh, Roger Veer and the guys that run Bitcoin.com, uh, which has been supporting Bitcoin Cash, obviously one of the forks that came out uh, mid last year of the the Bitcoin scaling debate. Very different views on where Bitcoin should go. Lots of people who had been following Bitcoin for a while and, and don't like the idea of Bitcoin Cash uh, were very upset about the notion of something that seemed legitimate like Bitcoin normal, the handle, uh, would be supporting something that isn't Bitcoin in their
0: view. It says a lot about that split in the community because a lot of the people who, like you say, Roger Ver, who are core to, you know early on, many years ago, were key supporters of the whole Bitcoin movement and Bitcoin community and now key supporters of the Bitcoin cash movement and community. So to them, Bitcoin cash is Bitcoin. You know, it forked off. It's that it's got the entire heritage of Bitcoin and it just happens to be going in a different direction to that other thing also known as Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, and I I, I had dinner with uh, Roger about a week ago and a really great guy and it was it was fantastic to finally sit down and, and speak with him after several years since big I big time name drop. Big time name drop. I also saw Satoshi Nakamoto. Thank you very much, John, for, like from saving me from that conversation. <laughs> um, so uh, there's a lot of people that are big names in this, and I completely get where they're going. I mean, Roger Veer in the early days saw this as a way to have uh, a payments mechanism that could be used in your everyday life, and he's still a strong supporter of that. And that's where Bitcoin Cash supporters are trying to go. Uh, and they see Bitcoin Core, uh, the, the software development group behind the implementation that is referred to as Bitcoin or VTC, as going a very different way. Um, and this was one of the things that irked him off. He's obviously a very strong libertarian supporter, saw this as kind of a, an attack on freedom of speech. People like Jameson Lopp have debated whether that was actually the case. And at some point after the Bitcoin.com team that was running at Bitcoin got uh, booted out, some random person ended up with this account and started tweeting about Turkey. Don't know why. Uh, they got about three tweets in, and um, then I guess Twitter turned that off and reverted.
0: Yeah, so the interesting thing here is uh, Jameson Lopp actually commented um, saying, freedom of speech means that the government won't throw you in a cage for saying something that doesn't it doesn't condone. Uh, freedom of speech doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want on somebody else's property. And somebody else's property here being potentially Twitter and the Bitcoin account and all of this sort of stuff. Twitter have probably done what you would expect that organization to do. So as ever, Jameson's been very sensible.
1: Very sensible. And, And what I always love about all these things is, you know... Bitcoin and cryptocurrency you're not prone to quickly going into conspiracy but a lot of people hypothesize that um, because Jack the um, the uh, CEO of Twitter uh, supported Lightning Network which is Bitcoin and not Bitcoin cash very different view in life uh, that he turned this off and it's all a big conspiracy because- I,
0: I love this conspiracy theory stuff like people just have they make up this stuff I, it's beautiful like the imagination of like how the world works in their mind like what a world they live in. I love it. <laughs> uh, just what a lovely world they live in, where the, where people have this this insane amount of power. Um, time for tweet of the week. Tweet 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 tweet. It's the tweet of the week.
2: Tweet
0: of the week. Today's tweet of the week is unsurprisingly comes from the Bitcoin account itself, where it was temporarily taken over. And as we said, and uh, I love this bit here where it just says Turkey is so cool with a little turkey flag. <laughs>
1: It, this was funny because i was like coming up to london and this all transpired as i got on the plane and it all kind of wrapped itself up quite nicely when i got off the plane Twitter <laughs> uh, twitter's fantastic isn't it
0: and that's some good crypto twitter right there back to news moving on a bad week for crypto exchanges this week um there was one positive story cnbc.com covered that uh, coinbase launched a venture fund and it seemed like as soon as this happened everybody on whatsapp reached out to me going, who do you know at Coinbase? I was like, whoa, why why is everybody getting in touch about this all of a sudden?
1: Yeah, in a world where, you know, everybody can go out and raise uh, tens of millions of dollars with ICOs, the fact that somebody wants to do it an old-fashioned way and everybody gets excited about that is quite funny.
0: Well, so um, they're launching an incubator fund for early-stage startups, and their president says we're going to invest off their own balance sheet crypto companies they'll invest in companies that are in the space and are aligned with their values um, and you might see them invest in companies that look competitive with Coinbase Um, they're not adding any new cryptocurrencies at the moment but according to them as soon as there is more regulatory clarity they're going to start listing more um, which Really interests me because I, I looked at the uh, written testimony of uh, Mike Lempress uh, to uh, the House Committee on Financial Services from Coinbase and really, really read that as being, hey, look, we, we think that the global formation of capital ICOs uh, could be a good thing, but we, Coinbase, only list Bitcoin and uh, Litecoin, Ethereum and Bitcoin Cash because they're the only ones with regulatory certainty, but also bear in mind, as we've said on the show a few times, SEC thinks it's a security. IRS thinks it's property. CFTC thinks it's a commodity. Like it's kind of all, and FinCEN thinks it's money. It's hard to do anything with this space. But this, this kind of early stage venture fund, this idea that they may do more in the future suggests that there's a real push towards how do you change that position and how do they start doing more for companies in the space?
1: What I really uh, take as a positive as well in this whole thing, I mean, we're talking about the coins and and all that, but Coinbase is a company that has made actual revenues and not just had a token go up in value. In fact, they don't. Uh, The tokens that they cover go up and down in value, but they actually make money from customers.
0: And that means they've got cash flow or cash sitting on their balance sheet uh, and they want to do something productive with that cash
1: and that's it's great that they're not just uh investing in buying other currencies but I, I mean if we go back uh about a year year and a half ago union square ventures came out with fat protocols versus skinny protocols and and i and i know a few other people and i think you as well have kind of critiqued this this way of looking at the world where they said essentially all the money is going to be in the token itself and there's no value on top of it coinbase is a multi-billion dollar company. That isn't deriving it from the FAT protocol, the coin. They're investing in other companies, or they're looking to invest in other companies, doing the same. So this is kind of that starting, there is value on top of this in offering services.
0: And I think FAT protocols was uh, looking at the world to say, right, yeah, as you say, the coin itself, the protocol itself, uh, historically never made a lot of money. HTTP doesn't make money. SMTP doesn't make money. Uh, The people that invent those protocols go on to be famous, but not billionaires or big companies. They're just free to the point of use. But the problem was, now we have this world in which every protocol has a currency, so they're all competitive because it's commercially interesting. It means the protocol can't gain mass adoption because it's not free. So there's this crazy idea of, well, it's free to access, but it costs money to access it. It's, it's really strange. Actually, it's hampering adoption that people have these currencies attached to the protocols. The fat protocol may never take over the world, or it's too fat. Um, All right. uh, Next story, uh, Coindesk.com. Japanese regulator suspends two crypto exchanges over KYC failings um, because of insufficient procedures. Um, Interesting. This one keeps coming up. I have a number of people ask me, uh, you know, how do we get bank accounts? How do we get bank accounts? It's like, sort out your KYC. It's as simple as that. Like, really can't be hard. Our next story on news.bitcoin.com, CEO of a Korean exchange, Coinest among four arrested for fraud. Ooh. You were in town at the time. I was
1: in town. I had nothing to do with it, I promise. So CoinNest is one of the smaller Korean exchanges. So essentially what the story describes is is alleged is the founders were actually taking money and the cash that should have been in KRW were actually buying Bitcoin with their clients' money. So you had Bitcoin on, on the left side and the right side of the balance which is fun. What I heard, which was quite interesting when this all happened because I was in town, all of them are doing the same thing. It's just these guys happen to have lost money uh, and couldn't pay back investors. So, you know, take a gamble. It doesn't always pay off. But uh, it it speaks volume to not just the KYC aspect, but there's everything behind running a business where you're running massively volatile risks on the back end. And how do you fix that? Um, Probably don't take more risks on the back of that. I think that's a
0: lesson learned. It's really strange to me that people try and run businesses without doing their homework, without doing due diligence. Like, you got to get this stuff right, people. Like, if I'm going to put a load of money into an exchange or to any sort of other business, I want to know the people running that. Whether it's a decentralized exchange or not, whoever's running it I want them to have done the thing well. I want to know that it's going to be at least well managed and looked after. Not that like, hey, fuck the system. These guys can run away and do whatever the hell they like because I believe in this ideologically. Actually, if we want decentralized exchanges to deliver the value they're going to live or even centralized exchanges, they're going to have to be operated well. And sometimes that means some of the rules, some of the reasoning and rationale behind why we built these compliance rules in the first place they still make sense. How they've been implemented historically and how you might implement them in the future could be two different things, and there's room for debate there. All right. Uh, next story from BloombergQuint.com. Is this a real website? It's part of Bloomberg. Okay. BloombergQuint.com, whoever they are. Um, the Reserve Bank of India bans regulated entities from dealing in virtual currencies. Central Bank's given three months for regulated entities like banks to unwind their positions with entities related to cryptocurrencies. This is really quite strong from the Reserve Bank of India. Uh, um, However, it's decided they're going to promote the use of blockchain for a public ledger that serves as the backbone of Bitcoin what on earth are they? Is this just a really bad translation of a story? This this reads like somebody's very, very confused.
1: I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, honestly, look, the, the problem is a lot of people are coming in and they're selling, you know, there's this great thing and you can do and there's all these no controls and, and blah, 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 blah. And by the way, Bitcoin's horrible. Um, and, you know, we can debate all these factors, but when it really comes down to it, it's very hard for a country like India or like China or lots of the other countries that have been looking at this to say, on the one hand, we absolutely hate cryptocurrencies because they get a the rules but on the other hand we're going to learn everything we can about the system but then we want to try to control it. it it doesn't quite work that way um and it's great and new things will come out and there will be different levels of permissions um but at the end of the day it's always going to come back to if you are able to get bitcoin you can do kind of more or less what you want that's the promise.
0: i mean you've said this before the more you try and ban the thing hide the thing control the thing the stronger it gets The best thing you can do is uh, kind of bring the thing into the system in some way and make it make sense. And now I would argue that the way that's been done in the U.S. has been a bit knee-jerk. It's been a bit like, hey, this is the existing bucket that this sort of fits into. Whereas the Japanese approach of, hey, we're going to build a law that's more tailored to this probably is right in the long term. Um, But we'll see how this one plays out because I think... Internationally, you're seeing a lot of different approaches. The more permissive um, sort of Crypto Valley approach of Zug, Switzerland. Some of the things you're seeing out Gibraltar, Malta, even more on the permissive side. Japan, arguably quite permissive, but also very thoughtful about risk. Um, and I think we will see as the likes of uh, FATF, the FSB, CPMI, these international bodies that are governed by the G20, start to talk about how do we harmonize some of this stuff internationally? Because they are really worried about counter-terrorist financing and money laundering that could be happening through this stuff. But as we've said on this show many times, the amount of actual money laundering going through these things compared to the existing world of financial services is incredibly small. The thing is, I think there is just this this irrational fear of, oh, it's going to take over central banks' control of the world, which it's just not.
1: And I don't know that central banks are even saying that. And that was something in this article. They said, if it does get bigger, it could really challenge where we sit. And, And for a... It's still a very, very large economy, India. Like, but it isn't. It isn't the size of the European Union. It's not the size of the United States. It's not even the size of Japan. Um, it is really kind of a concern about in a country where they had complete demonetization. What about a year ago? Um, because they were worried about f- forging money. There are some interesting lessons. And, and rather than saying do this or don't do that, you really run yourself into a corner, and either you're not going to have the talent in your country that understands this stuff enough to help advise you, or you're going to be relying on bad advice from the people that are left and will get you to do whatever pays their bills.
0: It's a really interesting point about the the facts on the ground in India and and the kind of the realities of it as an economy and cash within it as an economy and trying to push cash out of the system. And generally, um, I mean, this kind of links to the next story. This comes from uh, ccn.com. An R3 research director says central bank digital currency could go live this year. Uh, So this comes from Anthony Lewis, who's their director of research. And he says, we've had conversations with central banks who have mandates to fix certain payment problems. And one solution they look into is a blockchain type of platform. So there's this other quote in here as well, which is don't make your um, secondary brackets decentralized system look like your primary centralized system. Otherwise, if the primary system goes down, you'd be able to play the same trick. There's a couple of nice points in there. But the broader point here about central bank digital currency is firmly on the agenda uh, at this point. Central bank digital currency is something that's really exciting from a, a policymaker's perspective because if i could give you something that looks a lot like cash but it sits on your phone one i'm taking actual paper notes out of circulation i'm i'm taking cost out of the economy but two i can see how much cash is in circulation and potentially even prevent money laundering but it, it does feel a bit state control
1: well, I mean, so this came out of this. Uh, this article was actually about one of the panels at the economy, um, and Anthony, amongst a few other people, including Ian Grigg, uh, were speaking on this panel, talking specifically about how central banks would have money on a blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, they're all talking about on their own platforms, but more generally as well, it is a bit state controly, or at least central bank controly, and that that's kind of the issue, uh, or not the issue. That's kind of the point. Um, what I thought was really interesting and promising is how far they are along. Because if Anthony's saying this, it's not just some guy speculating. It is one of the companies that's being contracted by central banks to do it. And if he's saying it could go live this year... I'm thinking that's a pretty good sign that it's going to go live this year, and if not this year, early next year.
0: So there was a report that came out from uh, the Bank of International Settlements, FSB, and the um, so the Financial Stability Board, and CPMI, uh, around on March the 12th. So they could, uh, central bank digital currencies could impact payments, monetary policy, and financial stability. And I'm a big fan of Bank of England working paper 605, 605 represent, uh, which has been saying this for some time. And actually, a lot more there is about... How can we do things that help make banks more capital efficient and raise GDP? This goes really into the bowels of the organization. But then you start to think about it like we're really talking about payments as a token, right? We're talking about tokenizing payments and not dealing with payments the way we do today through one central point, but actually having many people be able to hold that token and reconcile it. So a central bank could issue a payment token. A commercial bank could issue a payment token. A non-bank financial institution could issue a payment token. Or an algorithm could issue a payment token. And if we understand all of those and the challenges with each, then suddenly it goes away from uh, cryptocurrency bad, central bank money good, to this is a spectrum here and this replicates real life and all of these have pros and cons. Alrighty, next story comes from Reddit.com. Um, there's a Mike Hearn AMA or Ask Me Anything. Was there anything that struck you from that?
1: Well, so so this bears in mind, we need to have some context here. So Mike Hearn was an early adopter of Bitcoin, um, spoke a lot with Satoshi Nakamoto, was, was integral in suggesting to uh, Bitcoin Core at the time, which wasn't called Bitcoin Core, but some of the early development groups uh, that ran the GitHub, um, different changes, and lots of those changes were actually pulled in. So Mike Hearn famously left in the early 2016 Uh, with what they called the rage quit. And um, so he basically said it was a failed experiment. A lot of the questions around this were, uh, what do you think now about Bitcoin Cash? He he was kind of uh, negative on it, but did see some positive aspects as well um, because they did take some of these changes. Mike Hearn, of course, works for R3 um, and is is very central. Uh, Talked a lot about Corda. um, Some of the ideas that come out in the next story that we'll get into, um, why they built Corda the way they built it, And what I thought was really interesting was he kept relating this back to the promise that Bitcoin was actually trying to deliver. And he saw this as a continuation in building Corda.
0: Isn't that super interesting that, like, uh, we were talking a moment ago about central bank issued digital currency tokens or representing value as a token. And he sees... He sees this guy who was really cool to some of the things. He was one of the first to argue for larger blocks. He was one of the first to argue for some of this stuff. He's now spent two years working within this, and he's still seeing that quite cool to division, which is always interesting to me because people tend to view uh, Corda as, like, by the banks, for the banks. But actually, there's a bit more, there's a bit more sense there than people give it credit for sometimes. But the next story um, is a link from Medium. So uh, Richard Brown, the CTO of R3, talks about universal interoperability and why enterprise blockchain applications should be deployed to shared networks. So there's been a bit uh, of drama about this one on Twitter. Colin Walker's through it.
1: Oh yeah, come on, because we need to have drama in the enterprise blockchain space like we do in cryptocurrencies. <laughs> um, so Richard Brown put out this, this comment. And I thought there were some really interesting points. Now we can argue about uh, the way that it, it was put out. And I know people like Chris Ferris at IBM, who's uh, core to um, the Hyperledger fabric, which, of course, was originally set up um, and contributed to the Hyperledger project, which is open source by IBM, uh, but is now open source and not IBM, Um, as well as some people over at the consensus group, uh, were really taken aback by what they saw Richard as saying. And, And I think what he was pointing out, and we need to get Richard back on the show, was It's not only about how you design the ledger and the architecture of who holds nodes and all that great stuff. It's also about how you build the business solutions. And this is something we've talked a lot about. And it's shared networks. You shouldn't replicate the centralized logic of how you do stuff now inside these things and run tons and tons of ledgers. And maybe you also shouldn't share absolutely everything. And Cord is trying to thread that needle to say, this is the problem that we see that we want to solve. And maybe the the greater issue here, and Simon, you were saying this earlier today, was maybe not everybody is – agreeing on what the problem they see is and that's why they have a different solution
0: well so the the thing um i mean you and i were involved in it so full disclosure we were there in the early days of r3 but one of the things in in the initial discussions was we were being really pedantic about uh what is the requirement what's the problem we're trying to solve here and and that's something that i think a lot of the other technologies hadn't been a lot of them started at this is a blockchain how do i make it go faster or how do i make it work for private uh parties you <laughs> The R3 kind of comes to it from the other side, which is, okay, let's understand everything that's going on in the blockchain space and let's look at all of the new ideas. But let's also look at all of the old ideas and everything else on the table and let's figure out and be really close to what is the fundamental problem. And I think some of the fundamental problems is it's hard to move money globally. It's hard to represent money in many places at once, uh, especially in some complex financial agreements where you've got sort of 10 to 12 different parties who all need to be updating stuff based on a price movement that could be moving in real time. Uh, and so you're know, fundamentally rethinking those problems was, was kind of really key. Um, and then, of course, the drama comes in. Not only that, there was the chat from IBM and the folks from Consensus kind of jumped in, there are different visions. The consensus view of the world is actually much more, well, no, we, we need something that's more applicable to this future version of the Internet, this Web 3.0 story, uh, this view in which the Internet becomes a world computer and that we need to start there and work back because that's more forward rather than just solving a problem that a few financial services companies have. But has Corda solved something in solving something for a few financial services companies that could work in more places? It's a really interesting question. And then IBM comes along and goes, well, neither of you are right. Actually, we need something in the middle ground of those two. It has to be a bit more like a blockchain sort of thing, a bit more world computery, but at the same time can't be just raw pragmatism. Let's get people together and let's do it for many industries by default. And and so these different worldviews are playing out in how the code bases are being developed. Alrighty, speaking of R3 and interesting timing, it's the Corda ad time. Uh, so today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda. And Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly in strict privacy. Like you said, privacy is very important for businesses. Um, using smart contracts, Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need for a trusted intermediary. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 and over 160 of the world's largest banks. And it's ready to build on today, the financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. You can transform your business ecosystem with a platform selected by the world's largest institutions to build their future on. Go to Corda.net to learn more. All right, Colin, next one is from Bloomberg.com, actual Bloomberg.com, not weird, Bloomberg.com. George Soros, the billionaire investor, prepares to trade cryptocurrencies. Um, what's going on here, Colin?
1: Do we know if he's buying or selling? I mean, he may just be shorting the shit out of it, right?
0: Well, yeah, there's a futures market now. He can do this.
1: So uh, a lot of people are seeing this kind of as a uh, we've made it. Um, Bitcoin loves to have we made it moments. And it seems like every single thing that ever happens is a we made it moment.
0: Looks like we made it. <laughs>
1: oh. <laughs> (laughs) So George Soros obviously uh, got a lot of money, $26 billion in his family office, decided, hey, you know, I want me some of these Bitcoin and some of these shit coins. So um, (laughs) jumping all in and getting involved with things like Overstock.com, hey, you know, why not get – more deeply involved because right now it's just so low volatility. Uh, it's the time to be getting in. Maybe he just wanted to buy the dip.
0: Yeah, no. So, because he called cryptocurrencies a bubble in January, uh, this is really interesting. So, there's a lot of people talking it down when it was at a high price.
1: Only this is yeah, a conspiracy theory, Simon. Uh, come on. George Soros is talking it down, so he can get in.
0: Yeah, or well, talking it down so that he can get in on the futures market. I mean, you just don't know what's going on here. Um, but also, um, the, you mentioned he's got a stake in Overstock. Um, but actually, he's the third largest shareholder in Overstock. That's that's pretty significant.
1: I mean, he must have heard the vision from uh, Patrick Byrne over there.
0: I, look... But also family officers are officers. It's not a person, yeah. right? So his family office sees some value in this space and are probably looking at that space more more broadly and, and starting to move in that direction as part of a portfolio. As um, we, we saw, the um, they're not the only ones. So from CryptoSlate, apparently the Rocco family Rockefeller, Rockefellers. Uh, the Rockefellers. There we go. Thank you, Colin. The Rockefeller family. God, that's hard to say. They partnered with the Cryptocurrency Investment Fund. So that's another big name. Um, they're venrock a venture capital firm the three billion dollar company is looking to start investing in cryptocurrencies the partner discussed their company's new alliance with coin fund uh brooklyn based cryptocurrency investor group uh, we wanted to partner with this team that has been making investments and actually helping to architect a number of different crypto economies and token based projects
1: what i think is really interesting is the thing that we've kind of hit on it's not how can these things be a currency it's how can these things be an asset And then the natural question is, what do you actually do with these assets? And I think that question is still up in the air. But, you know, it's probably a very small portfolio that both of these have in there. So we're talking about billion dollar funds. Maybe, maybe they're investing in $10 million. So it's quite small for them.
0: It's a big number. Still. Did you guys also see something about the Rothschild family as well, looking at this space? Like, we, for a long time, the smaller family offices were rumored to be in this space. Now, this, sort of, this speaks to me as like a different level of investor who takes longer to do their due diligence is starting to move into the space. So the, even though the price move has been really significantly downward since the beginning of the year, there's definitely uh, more interest out there in this idea of a new asset class that can move globally and and i think that core concept is something too but you're right for to what end for who is hasn't really been figured out that's still the killer use case is still a big question mark or
1: i always thought it was crypto twitter uh
0: it's crypto kitties clearly um all right next story comes from ccn.com uh, the sec have apparently quietly put bitcoin ETF, exchange-traded funds, proposals back on the table. They're back on the table, Colin. That seems like wishful thinking.
1: Uh, Yes, they've talked about it. They put out some things, but basically they reiterated where they were. Um, The New York Stock Exchange has pushed back and – sorry, the SIBO has pushed back and said, we'd love if you took all this on a case-by-case basis. Essentially, what happened last time the SEC opined on this slip in mid-2017 was – essentially, the market structure is not ready yet. We don't have good solid exchanges that we can back these things with. And even the big exchanges we've seen coming in on the futures markets are kind of hacking around and using some of these unregulated exchanges. Maybe some of the things that we've been hearing about Coinbase uh, looking to become a broker dealer might give them some comfort. And we might be able to actually have this discussion, a real discussion around actually having Bitcoin ETFs. Now, the question I have is, is that really a good product that adds value to people? Uh, Bitcoins are still pretty easy to get to if you're a retail individual. It maybe makes sense for big institutions, but there are other avenues as well.
0: They are now Robinhood and Revolut and other fintech apps kind of give you access to them. But also the, the price at which you're buying Bitcoin from a Coinbase at 1.5% is different to the, the nature of the economics of an ETF. And an ETF can more easily be held in a 401k or a pension portfolio or, or savings pot or in, uh, interest-free savings accounts in the UK. Like ETFs are a different uh, kind of structure and uh, they they fit within different portfolios in a different way and because they are all this uh this regulated product uh, they they are it, it, the etf is seen as, as really really key by some people all right next story comes from uh cryptoglobe.com um it's about monero mitosis so a hard fork has led to four new cryptocurrencies walk us through this one colin
1: <laughs> you know sometimes these coins get out there they just want to outdo bitcoin yeah. so they like we're going to fork and not have one airdrop token. We're going to have four. So um, Monero is a cryptocurrency that is focused on privacy. It's one of the older coins. Um, got a lot of play last year when when the price started going to the moon. Uh, we started getting lots of comments from people that were focused on privacy because they saw this as really a central problem inside of Bitcoin. Um, one of the early use cases in Bitcoin was around uh, dark markets. Uh, the problem is very quickly we found out that law agencies could track Bitcoin payments. So the next thing was, you know, how do we get into Monero? How do we get into Zcash? How do we get into the one we'll talk about in a little bit? Uh, things like Verge and Dash and all these other proliferation of privacy-led coins. Um, one of the things specifically that Monero has to do to guard that privacy is have regular hard forks. Um, they recently had a hard fork to uh, stop ASIC. So these are the big miners. We hear about them in China and places like Quebec and Washington State that are using really cheap electricity, centralizing that through specific hardware that makes mining more efficient from an electricity point of view, also known as cheaper. Um, So Monero uh, started to see ASICs come online. They wanted to fork away from this so that it would be more difficult to do it. And a lot of people disagreed with that, and they happen to be supported by miners and some of the exchanges. Uh, And boom, we have uh, Monero Dash Classic, Monero Space Classic, Monero Original, and Monero Zero now. So um, congratulations to all these new currencies. I still don't know why you would use any of them because they seem they don't seem to really have the following that Monero Monero has,
0: um, but we'll see. Monero Monero, Monero Classic, Monero Original, Monero Zero, Monero Dash Classic. Th- you make a good point about the ASICs because this happened to Ethereum recently as well. We, we see that... Um, Enthusiasts start mining a cryptocurrency upon the original vision, and then eventually somebody comes along and figures out that I can build a, a dedicated chip that will make it far more profitable uh, if I have these chips, and so on. And you get a race to the bottom. Um, so, uh, and then there was the other story in Wired, I think we covered last week, about um, Monero uh, isn't as as kind of invisible as people thought it was. And, uh, uh, law enforcement and uh, agencies and technology companies can now trace Monero so it kind of has to do this it kind of has to keep moving uh, but at the same time I think this this game of uh, constant privacy coins for the sake of uh, use on dark markets is not necessarily um, going to be effective forever Pro- coins that give you privacy that also allow something to be unlocked in the event of a court order those sorts of things could become more, more doable in the future um, it just seems to me like crypto might be uh looking for its edge all the time uh by forking and in so doing diluting itself potentially but it also could be and let many flowers bloom and this is how you discover the thing that makes it successful
1: i, th- I think it's a good way to experiment on this
0: yeah no I, I i agree thinking out loud though. thinking out loud thinking out loud happens on the show people well, are... we can fork our, our opinions here we perfect. can fork off thoughts wait <laughs> hang on that sounds dirty it's like crypto dirty <laughs> <laughs> All right, next story from Bloomberg. Bloomberg been busy on the crypto stories this week. Uh, Ripple has allegedly tried to buy its way onto major exchanges for cryptocurrency. The article reads, if XRP is classified as a security, it would be removed from the largely unregulated wild west of cryptocurrencies and become subject to requirements similar to those that govern assets like stock. So would the exchanges that offer it. Indeed, Jesse Overall, which is a great name for a person. Um, <laughs> I wonder what he wears. Yeah. An attorney at Clifford Chance said paying for a listing could be perfectly legal, given that traditional markets like NASDAQ, for instance, charge such fees. But things could get more complicated if a digital token were later deemed to be an unregistered security. In such case, both the exchange and the issuer could face penalties. Listing on an exchange is an integral part of the process of facilitating an unregistered, unlawful, legal securities issuance to people who are not allowed to buy. In the equity space, listing fees have Always historically been coupled with the notion of regulation, while digital currencies are relatively unsupervised. Although um, there's there's a position that from regulators that they should be more supervised, especially in the US. Any thoughts on this one, Colin?
1: Yeah, I, I think being very careful on, on how we word this because I know it's it's Ripple is walking a very tight line in its relation with XRP, the currency, uh, what its class has, what their role is with regards to it, um, and there's a lot of pushback on. The fact that XRP has existed longer than the company known as Ripple, Um, and I know everybody thinks of them as one and the same, but they are different. There are lots of arguments um, for and against the fact that it could be a security. What I think really kind of gets in the heart of this story is if these allegations are true that Ripple, the company, is actively going out and um, proposing to companies like Gemini and Coinbase money to get XRP on that platform, you have to go back and question the assumptions of how tenuous is this link between them or... Are they really, really actually supporting it? Now, Ripple has come out and said, and Brad Garlinghouse has come out and said, Ripple is supporting XRP. We want to support the markets of XRP. So you would think within that, it's perfectly within their rights that they would want to make something that is seen as very easy for retail and institutional money to get into these new assets as potentially helping some of the products they want to put out. But it does ask that question of, are we not picking and choosing when it's convenient to use it as a security or not as a security. And it's not whether it is or it isn't, but it's what's convenient at your particular time. And I know if people start to raise this question, if there are losses, they will start to look for compensation and ripple the company that happens to control a large chunk of these XRPs that they've locked up uh, so they can't easily access them, uh, might be held liable. So I think it's it's dangerous. Um, but at the same time, it is also positive uh, from the point of view that they're trying to get out and make it easier uh, for some of their prospective clients to actually use these things and do, as they said, support
0: the market. Indeed, uh, relatively um, linked story from CoinDesk.com here about XRP being a security, which has some of the same points that you made. We'll move on to the stories we didn't have time to cover. Story uh, from CoinDesk.com: The anti-petro Zcash throws Venezuelans a lifeline, apparently. Another privacy coin. Another privacy coin. I'm, I'm, I always think of the Coin Telegraph. Like, what would the graphic for this story be if they covered it? Like uh, throwing them a, a lifeline from a from a ship or something. That's very visual in my mind.
1: I'd love the the artist over at cointelegraph that's like the best thing going about cointelegraph
0: yeah well all right colin's opinions are his own coinless.com uh crypto exchange wabi uh registers with fincen ahead of their u.s launch so interesting that um some of the kind of chinese exchanges that had uh pre- that had gone all crypto to crypto are now looking for registration elsewhere so they can do fiat to crypto in other jurisdictions
1: Yeah, and I think they had, at least onshore in China, didn't they have at least CNY to to Bitcoin and Litecoin, I I think. But yeah, outside of that, obviously, if you were a non-Chinese domiciled uh, investor, you maybe could only do Bitcoin to Litecoin. So, interesting development.
0: I, I think it starts to talk about the exchanges that are generating lots of revenues daily, that are profitable businesses, and now looking at international expansion, and actually, Because these exchanges have done well, because they are cash rich, you see Coinbase growing a VC fund, you see Chinese exchanges looking at international expansion. This has to signal something in the market of a growing or a maturing of the financial infrastructure there that is global in nature. These businesses are quite different to market infrastructure that we saw historically. And that, if I'm sitting in financial services, is an interesting indication of the future of financial services. Um, Cointelegraph.com, Bitfinex denies fraud allegations tied to confiscated funds in poland just
1: and their graphic wasn't as good as i sold the previous story. <laughs> uh, so
0: it wasn't a whale
1: no but it, you got There's a little no. bitcoin with arms looking at paper and uh, check it out
0: yeah and it's not the same and uh story from news.bitcoin.com verge is forced to fork after suffering a 51 percent attack again another hard headline to say forced to fork
1: forced to fork I wish we had time to cover this because it really was an interesting story. Fifty-one um, percent attack. For people that don't know, look it up. Is when um, somebody <laughs> in the that's it. Te- just leave it there. Just, just look it up. Just look it up. Uh, Google it, as, as Craig Wright would say. Um, is is when a single party or colluding parties are able to take over more than half the hashing power on a network and. Um, change the blocks as they see fit, which could be censorship. In some cases, if you have enough, it could be actually rolling things back. They also found another hack inside of Verge.
0: And what's interesting is I remember two, three years ago when everybody was talking about Bitcoin, they were going, huh? is it going to suffer one of those 51% attacks? Is that possible? And it was one of the first things people brought up. But, you know, like they always talk about the electricity now or they talk about, all oh, quantum computers, is that going to end Bitcoin? The 51% attack was the thing and, and actually that not- network got big enough to where it's not really an- a likely outcome that the 51% attack would happen in Bitcoin because of the economic incentives. But it actually happened in Verge.
1: Yeah. Uh, Verge is, is a, a relatively small coin. It's number 20 with only, what, something like $1.25 billion. It's quite small.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Teeny tiny. Teeny tiny. All right. Um, before we leave you today, Colin, you spoke to Tim Swanson, Greg Wolfson, and John Collins at the Deconomy Conference. Shall we throw to that? This was This
1: was the first part of Pitch Token Classics DevCon, mm-hmm. or PitchCon, as we call it. <laughs> Over to that. I am here in Seoul, South Korea, just on the back of the Economy Conference. I'm here joined by Greg Wolfson, John Collins, and the one and only Tim Swanson. Thanks for coming on, guys. Great to be here. Thank you. So we had a fantastic couple of days here. Thanks very much to the organizers, Jeff Pack, Ash Han, and all the wonderful team behind Economy. Uh, Been a really interesting conference. Big drama. Um, Started all out with Centra, kind of getting permabanned by the SEC, and then actually at the conference, we saw them all here and... There was some good swag, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: some some memorialized swag, yeah. memorialized swag, you know,
1: collectible, de- um, de- definitely It'll be on eBay soon. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, guys, can you tell me a bit about um, first who you guys are? For those that don't know, um, what what you thought of the conference, your highlights, your lowlights, um, and some of the way lowlights. Um, don't want to hear too much about the party last night, but it was a good party, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah good
4: it was. Times. Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah. Airdropping dropping <laughs> champagne, air dropping champagne. Airdropping champagne. Yeah, yeah, which is, is
1: important. important. And of course, about some of your favorite tokens that you've seen this whole time. Really, I mean, like pitch token classic, obviously. Obviously, pitch token. Pitch token
4: classic. is yeah. <laughs>
2: so Greg. Uh, hey, so I'm I'm uh, I'm Greg Wolfson with uh, Element Group. I'm the head of business development there. We're a uh, crypto investment bank. Uh, we do advisory, OTC, and uh, we have a fully regulated hedge fund, um, So, and I was here for the, the panel on blockchain startups. There we're about 30 people split between Los Angeles and New York.
4: And I'm John Collins. I'm head of the U.S. for Redfly Consulting. We're a strategic communications uh, and advisory firm with offices in Dublin, in Brussels, in L.A., in D.C., where I am based out of, and I am former Coinbase, where I did policy work. And
3: what panel are yeah. you
4: Oh, and I was on the policy panel with Tim Swanson. Speak of the devil. Uh, Yeah, so uh, I'm Tim Swanson. I've
3: I've had the pleasure to be on the show uh, with Colin before. Um, I guess most people know me as uh, my my role previously at R3, but I run a company called uh, Labs now. And um, a number of my clients are on the enterprise side, but most of them are trying to do something as, as young st- tech startups with uh, with blockchains, and they almost always never need to use a blockchain. But, you know, this world is uh, is a blockchain world. So it's, it's, a, it's a world in which we we need to understand. I'm mostly joking about all this stuff. But uh, <laughs> bottom line is I came out here. I've known Jeff. Uh, we worked together uh, previously at colleagues at, at R3, and um, he was putting on this... This uh, little event—it turned out to be a really big event—and I had the pleasure to be on a panel with John. Um, didn't have a pa- oh, oh, and Colin, you and I were on a panel too, the very beginning of the day uh, or uh, the first day. And Greg, you know, we just uh, we just say snarky things when we see each other. So you know it's, it's great to great to be here, and thanks for thanks for the invite,
1: Colin. Yeah, yeah. and definitely about a zero knowledge snark the whole time. Zero knowledge mm-hmm. snark, mm-hmm. yes. which, which is what we're all about. Um, so, guys, want to hear what was the drama first of all? So, you want me to give a replay of this? Let's get the whole replay. Yeah, were
4: we all sitting together or separately? Because I think the perspectives from the room might also be interesting. Yeah, I was on
2: the BCH side of the room, for the record, you guys.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the bride and groom side. Not not
2: just physically, but ideologically as well. Wait, just physically. Physically.
3: (laughs) Yeah, so uh, to give people an idea of uh, what this layout was, it's a room filled between 800 to 1,000 people, depending on how many people were standing. Um, the last panel of the day, uh, Jeff was moderating Roger Ver and Samson Mao. For those who aren't familiar, Roger Ver was an early investor in the space who's a big proponent of something called Bitcoin Cash. Samson Mao is considered kind of like his you know, nemesis, arch nemesis on social media. Um, he works at a company called Blockstream, and they slugged it out uh, mostly metaphorically. Or. I don't think they actually hated each other, did they? No, I didn't There's see it. was a one. swipe. There's yeah, a, little yeah. uh, fisticuffs. So um, at the end, though, uh, for whatever reason, they opened it up to the audience without microphones, and uh, they, at the, the very last question, Vitalik stood up and said uh, you know, a, a number of things related to a, a person not on the stage at the time named Craig Wright, um, and basically called them out for being, what he said, uh, an alleged
1: fraud. And So Craig Wright, Satoshi Nakamoto had uh, given a speech and a presentation about his view for Bitcoin uh, just previous to the panel. Um,
3: and-, and there was some controversy because he was supposed to be on that panel, but Samson Mao refused to be on it, claiming that this guy is a fraud and fake and stuff like that. So he sat in the audience as well. Um, yeah, but bottom line is, uh, is Vitalik, uh, it's, it's, funny if you guys go to these events, people are like, oh, who's got questions? And then you have somebody stand up there and write, say a comment, right? So Vitalik's statement was actually a comment and then asked the question at the very end. And there was lots of boos, hisses, and clapping, depending on uh, what side of the debate you were on that. Uh, and then they hastily, uh, closed down the,
4: the mic and everyone was airlifted out. Yeah. But before that, Craig Wright was in, so like Vitalik is in the right side of the room, right? In the front. But then Craig Wright is on the left side. And so after Vitalik does his thing, you hear the applause and hisses and all that stuff. Then you just hear Craig Wright sort of inaudibly yelling. Some kind of response, which I didn't hear. Yeah, he,
2: he jumped up and said something to the effect that, that, um, that whatever, Vitalik, Vitalik's, Vitalik's correction of Craig's presentation was incorrect. I mean, he was basically defending what he had already said. And said that it was very simple and uh, didn't have time to explain it all. But it was... All very all, all very dramatic, sort of bringing to a head all these conflicts that have been brewing in the space for a really long time. Um, and it, it kind of it kind of overshadowed everything else that was said because it, it was it was uh, just like Jerry Springer stuff. Very much. And I
1: think Joseph Poon, who's the creator of Plasma and Lightning, was also kind of over next to Vitalik and started screaming something at one point as well. Yeah, he, That's right. He, he said yeah.
3: something to the fact like, uh, I'm the co-author of the lightning paper and I still have no idea what kind of babble was said <laughs> by, by Craig. So uh, there's videos of it, I
1: believe. some people posted some gorilla photos or yeah. video or something like that. Yeah, you, we should definitely try to get some links in here for that because there, there was some interesting drama. But aside from the drama, which was good fun... Um, what were some of the other things? Uh, maybe tell people a bit about what came out of your speeches, your panels, um, and some of the other things you liked during the the two days here.
2: Okay, so so I think what what came out of my panel and in, in related panels uh, was mostly related to to uh, I- ICOs, new token issuances, um, and the the general direction and in, in which way things are going right now. Uh, you know, my my panel in particular, it seemed like. Uh, that we reach a consensus that it's very much moving in a fully regulated direction. Basically, the bankers and lawyers are taking over everything, and um, and and th- that that space is is going to going to follow the marching orders of various government uh, regulatory agencies. So it's, it's going it to. we kind of see it evolving in that way over the, over the next year, um, where it's it looks much more like traditional venture capital, much more like trad- traditional markets. Uh, the sort of regulatory arbitrage is is that people have been playing, you know running off to various jurisdictions is is gonna get squeezed uh, to a big extent. and the real institutional money is uh, waiting there on the sidelines, but the, the 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 major gating issues are that are that there's just uh, there, there's no regulations and no and no uh, and no infrastructure around it. so that's what that's what's stopping it from coming in. but I guess the point the the, the the long view is, that uh, these these small jurisdictions, wherever you know, in the, in the Caribbean or off, islands off of Europe or whatever, uh, you know, those those will you know may prosper for some time, but their time is limited. And the, the real big markets will will exist in established spaces. So that was the takeaway from my panel.
1: And I'm I'm curious in that, were you able to get into, or do you have another view on whether this will affect the size of the raises? Because I know one of the really interesting things that people have talked about in ICOs is not just that they're kind of wildcat operations, but that the
2: numbers are really really big. Right. I mean, I think I think right now we'll see we're, we'll probably see a, a period of, of, of uh, somewhat somewhat so depressed raises. I mean, you're not. I think that uh, you know, certainly the market's down right now. But once you do get that legitimacy and that in- institutional money, there will be you know there'll be a li- liquidity multiplier. Well, so
0: yeah, yeah, and I
4: think too some of these projects like they raised. I, I know you can never have too too much money, right? Of course, uh, impossible to impossible. Impossible. Yeah. have too much money. Yeah. But some of <laughs> these projects have raised too much money, where they literally need to spend it because they need to show their investors that they're doing something and they literally have too much to spend. These aren't investors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Donations. Yes, donations. Sorry, sorry. Um, but they they can't spend it fast enough, so well, maybe I, that I,
2: helps. I, I mean, I don't I, know. I agree. I think that's especially for like kind of uh, kind of smaller teams, especially more immature teams. I think that's, that's one of the things that we look at carefully is actually who you're giving money to and can can they can they usefully uh, use it at all? You know, are they, uh, or is this liquidity event something that's just going to fracture a team, which which indeed happens, especially with some of this, the the younger, more immature groups. Um, so, you know, so that, so I, I think all, you know, we, we, you know, re-regulation is good and and it's just a natural maturation of the market. It's nothing, nothing to panic over.
4: Yeah. And I mean, it was, uh, my panel, uh, was on the regulatory sort of schemes and, um, you also gave a presentation. Yeah, yeah, I I gave a presentation. presentation. Yeah, I had massive font, uh, because you know if it's important, if it's got 200 plus, size font And it was a giant screen as well. So it was, not only was a lot it was of giant plus, screens. Yeah, but yeah. the letters were bigger than you. Yeah, they were bigger than me, which is which is pretty easy to do. So you're, like you're like a 2 <laughs> <laughs> x exactly. But no, my my uh my presentation was mostly on sort of what's happening uh, on the political and regulatory spheres. You know sort of internationally in the U S and Europe and Asia, and then talking a little bit about sort of what I think we might see as, um, major activity drivers going forward, um, probably in the next year. And really it's around ICOs it's around, you know, the decentralized web and, and sort of the, um, the increase in, in those applications. You know, I think the BSA, the bank secrecy act and a lot of the AML KYC issues that, um, pretty much have been settled, I think, for the past few years, at least in the U.S. Um, I think they're going to rear their heads again in a major way, because I think there's a lot of concerns about nation-state actors using some of this tech to get around sanctions. I think also there's a lot of concern about some of these platforms and projects that have perhaps not done the uh, due diligence in AML-KYC they should have. And I think, uh, I think that's actually going to play a major role in some of the discussions we'll have in the next few months. But uh, then we did a panel that was moderated by... Uh, the one and only Tim Swanson. Yeah, no, it, it was it was cool. Uh, I actually didn't even put together. like Jeff actually is the one who put
3: together the the ideas and stuff like that, and I just kind of filled in the blank. Uh, so yeah, I had a, a great panel with Colin, and we we it, just to give some perspective. Uh, the the night before, uh, we all had a speakers dinner, and uh, a funny guy who you guys should have on your show at some point, uh, Kirill Garov. Uh, he was at the the funny funny table, as it were, and uh, you guys all came
1: up with. <laughs> Uh, uh, term Pitch token uh, this kind I think of, this was actually at lunch right before then Because yeah. we all got in pretty early And we all spent some time Because there's not much around So the- you're like
3: pre-pre-pre-sale And I'm like, I got in at the pre-sale Is that what you're saying? Yeah, uh, sorry oh, yeah. oh, is- yeah. Alright, well, anyways The Genesis is roughly uh, Everyone trying to come up with the most zany idea For a token that sh- shouldn't exist but should it does. Uh, un- un- inadvertently, it there inadvertently is a Pitch one. Token. Yeah. yeah, so we first day, everyone's kind of making jokes about being an advisor to something that didn't exist. Then we Googled it that night and we found out someone had made it. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, There's like a very active
4: Telegram community for <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
3: this fake And, the, and yeah, they, actually, they actually did an ICO apparently like a month ago. And the price is going to pop out for this podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, so.
2: Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so So, pumper.
3: so uh, I, I had the foresight of saying that we forked it to Pitch, coin, uh, pitch Token Classic uh, and obviously, obviously that's somebody who going to squat that domain at some stage so uh that was an ongoing gag um as far as panels go uh we had a fun time it was it was nice meeting francis and uh, david on that panel um and then yeah i I ended up speaking during about GDPR, which i suppose uh this is originally from europe so you guys may have a clientele who cares about that but irrespective of what clientele you have if, if they have customers in europe then gdpr obviously is something that could impact them and then uh yeah the panel um uh, I try to be as snarky as possible with my, my comments to you. Uh, we a, uh, Danny Yang uh, who um, uh, provides AML related services through a company called Blocks. Here was on there as well, and then um, apparently one of the top lawyers from South Korea, uh, Simyum, yeah, he was on there as well. Uh, so I, the, the videos will be online, um, and happy to happy to take questions about what I
4: wanted to say but couldn't because I was on stage. All right, well let's start there. No, I'm <laughs> Well, you know what was interesting about Sam's learning about the South Korean market? Because obviously, you know, sitting in the U.S., you know, you see a lot of incoming news about it's the kimchi premium and just the, the retail investment that's gone into this space from, you know, normal people, right? Grandmothers and, and millennials and that sort of thing. So it was interesting to talk to him about what, what drove that. And a lot of it seems like it's cultural. You know, in terms of especially millennials, this is a really tough economy for, for young people to... You know, make a living in. So they're always looking for you know investments that are going to make them quick cash.
2: Or well, I think I think you know like like even above and beyond uh, cultural, I think there's a, just a, just a strong macro element to it. Um, you know where you know the, where you know places like South Korea and Japan. They they I mean the, the economies have are not keeping the same sort of breakneck growth that they had in the past, and we're you know in a period of quantitative easing, and there's not a lot of uh, investments other than. You know, real estate and the stock market, and uh, you know, gambling is basically uh, is, is illegal in, in most forms uh, in, in South Korea. And uh, so, so I, I think that that the uh, the new token market has fulfilled some, some some of that demand. So, being
1: here in South Korea, there's a lot of interesting things that happen, and I'd love to delve a bit more into that and in, in kind of what you guys have been seeing, the people you've been speaking to at the conference, and I know we were we were out in town yesterday and, and meeting some interesting people talking about tokens. Um, what are your overall impressions in, in how being in Seoul, and I know you guys did a bit of traveling around in Asia before, and, and John, you're, you're taking off later today to go uh, go out to Japan. How do you think that the average people thinking about these uh, may be different from, from back home, back in the United States for you guys, um, or what you've seen traveling around the world, is there a different mentality? Do you think there's
2: more optimism for it, less optimism, or is it not about that at all? At least where I've been, it seems it seems a little more more optimistic. Um, you know, I was I was uh, you know I was based in Shanghai for a number of years, and um, I was there during during uh, you know last last fall uh, when the, when they really began to, to shut down all the markets. And I was I was just there recently, and you know, really surprised at how how vibrant it is uh, at least in terms of uh, you know introducing a lot of different new technologies. That scene is really uh, really ha- really still happening in a big way. Um, you know, I, before that I was at token 2049 in Hong Kong, also one of the, one, one of the better, better conferences I've been to, uh, you know, it seems like the app, the appetite there is great. Um, you know, I think the regulation in the States, um, and you know, maybe, maybe someone else can speak to this, uh, a bit, uh with a bit more authority, but it, uh, Uh, You know, I I think it it is it is extremely constraining um, as far as what you can do. I can understand consumer protections and that, you know, all finance in the states is considered a national security issue, uh, you know, which is, uh, you know, not necessarily the best for financial innovation. Um, So I think that the environment the environment out here seems it seems, you know, people are cautiously optimistic. And I think uh, more or less I see, uh, you know, I see these regions or these these various uh, jurisdictions moving more towards. The, the Japanese model uh, certainly, I think, or at least it's arguably true that Japan is currently the you know, the world leader for regulations.
4: Yeah, and I think you know I was talking to some folks yesterday who are focused sort of on fintech more broadly uh, in country here in South Korea, and and I think one of the things that they talked about is the government here is really struggling to figure out how to regulate this space, and so they're trying to coordinate, maybe having some U.S. regulators come talk to them, and perhaps some Japanese regulators. Um, Come talk to them because right now what's interesting about the way in which like AML-KYC, for instance, is done with some of the exchanges in South Korea is that... So if you're an exchange in the U.S., you have a banking relationship, it is not up to the bank to put in your AML-KYC compliance program. It's the exchanges. Uh, In South Korea, it's the bank that actually is responsible for that. So what they're doing is they're using the banks as the gatekeepers um, and the compliance officers basically for these exchanges, um, which they seem like they want to move to a more permanent solution. I mean, I'm of the mindset that clarity actually helps the industry. I think, you know, you saw that in Japan, you saw that in the U.S. I think it's been good, at least on the exchange side. And I think there's a multiplier that, that companies are more valuable if there's regulatory clarity around them. Um, and frankly, I don't think Japan would have ever come as far as they did without Gox, which is an unfortunate um, truth, but I think it is the truth. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see sort of how, how they develop out.
3: Yeah, so uh, much like uh, Greg, I spent a lot of time in Asia. So I've had a, a not, not only living out here but uh, traveling back and forth. And I was just in uh, in Tokyo and then Shanghai and Beijing. Um, yeah, the, uh, for whatever reason, FOMO still exists, uh, even though there's been quite a bit of crackdown um, on all the fronts from what you guys were saying. Um, there was. It seemed like there was. Fewer people at a couple of the events I was at in, in China just before this week, uh, but it could just been the weather or something like that. It's unclear uh, if uh, obviously it's, it's banned to some extent, and exchanges are, are uh, spot exchanges are banned on the on the mainland. Uh, but uh, if you if you talk to any of these people raising funds for these different projects, uh, Chinese still being pitched uh, as investors usually offshore uh, or discreetly. Again, I'm not endorsing any of this. I'm just reflecting on what what people were, were saying to me. Um, as far as the uh, the Korean market uh, as a whole, um, I mean, we we've seen um, that uh, well, you mentioned the kimchi premium kind of disappear, and you know, Sam was explaining some reasons why. Um, and um, again, we could talk about you know uh, capital controls and stuff like that at some stage if you guys want. But uh, yeah, uh, overall, everyone seemed fairly uh, on the up uh, upbeat compared to say uh, a number of months ago. There was actually just for people listening, uh, there was a, a view maybe even. Um, late November or something like that, that the, the Korean market would be completely frozen out, like uh, like China. There was lots of rumors about, or not even rumors, there was actually like press releases that, hey, we're going to ban this stuff. Uh, in fact, Jeff, who put this event on, I remember talking to him like in mid-December or so, and he's like, Tim, I'm not even sure if like when we actually hold this event, if, if there'll be a market here at all. Um, obviously, he, he made that, that, that gamble, as it were, to mm-hmm. take the risk, and it, it turned out to be that The market wasn't shut down, so
4: uh, there's still kind of a bit of enthusiasm here for that. I mean, one of the things that I gathered yesterday around that is that 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 was like, because it's very paternalistic, especially like the regulation of financial services here is very paternalistic and it's very based on physicality. So the idea that you have, and this is broader than just, I think, cryptocurrency related businesses, it's a fintech um, issue, is that businesses that are not physically here that cannot be examined by the regulators they are very sketched out about and and are very um, hesitant to to allow. But it seems like that they backed off that and you know are looking for a more permanent solution. But I got to say one of the things you mentioned this, Greg, that that I noticed was the um, the fact that people are as sort of they're accepting that regulation's coming and they're trying to figure out like the way to do it, whether it's security tokens or otherwise. If you would, like the move from crypto anarchism to crypto capitalism among these sorts of conferences is pretty striking because i don't think you would have seen that same mindset even just like three or four years ago
2: right i mean i think you yeah d- definitely was uh i mean you we, we st- we still get you still get some doses of uh you know this sort of crypto anarchism and the sort of like you know s- self-serving libertarianism that some people will throw out there there was um a, a comment made about you know disallowing bitcoin was killing babies or something to this effect <laughs> um but you know, it, it certainly, yeah, I think that uh, you, you know the you know following the trend is you know you know I think uh, you know there's enough money that's been pouring into the space and enough innovation that's been occurring that's all been really positive and 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 uh, regulators uh, and, and regulator that are worth their salt uh, recognize that and try to try to try to create frameworks uh, that 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 that, that uh, facilitate that sort of innovation. Um, so you know, so I expect I expect some you know some interesting things coming out in the space. I look you know looking towards the next you know year or two. You know, I think certainly you know I mean right now you know we kind of assume that everything could be construed as a security token. I think that will become more explicit in the next you know in the next year or two, and you know and really really you know beginning to you know work out exactly what what are what are the efficiencies gained and which which are which you know which which parts are. Are necessary and useful from crypto, and which parts are just simply reinventing the wheel and are, are actually redundant uh, with, uh, with with existing markets. Is I think uh, what's what's going to be necessary and uh, getting the sort of guidance from regulators to uh, you know to make that to make that uh, an, to make that an effective efficient market is is uh, something that I hope to see soon.
1: Great, and I think I think it would be remiss, like there there was. A really interesting thing right at the beginning of this conference where we're talking about the cutting edge, what's going to happen next. There was a really good contextual part that came from Professor David Chom, who, for those that don't know, has been working in cryptocurrencies, if we can call them that, um, since the 70s. So he put together something in the 80s uh, to set up the first crypto cryptography, not cryptocurrency, um, uh, panel, international organization. He was telling a, a stories about that, one of the original cypherpunks. He also had some way where you could have a bearer instrument that those of us working in cryptocurrencies would kind of recognize. But the, the context that he brought to this conference was, amid all the speculation, amid all, you know, number goes up on token, um, what what are we actually trying to achieve? And it's this money aspect. It's what are the efficiencies that, that are brought in? And it was really good to kind of come back and say, with all this fervor, what are we actually trying to achieve? And whether it's, you know... Uh, bold statements about uh, whether cryptocurrencies will end uh, world famine and and poverty. It's really trying to solve this problem of bringing a bit of privacy back to your transactions, trying to actually develop a new form of money to be more inclusive, however you want to define that. Um, And I really appreciated that. The other thing that I I thought, and I'd love to hear your guys' opinions on on this topic and, and on the next, was... Outside of what was going on on, on the panel, um, there was a lot of discussion because I, I had always been under the impression, I don't know what you think about this, but Ethereum was always kind of lagging behind in the mindset in, in this part of the world. Um, obviously there was a lot done in China, obviously there was a lot done um, by the Ethereum community, by, by companies related to it, including ConsenSys, um, amongst every other one, but Korea had felt a little bit behind. They had a very prominent role uh, during this conference, weren't a lot of big announcements um, but they did seem to be a lot of interest i know i was sitting kind of towards the front when um aya the new executive director was there and all of the press rushed up to take pictures of her and of Vitalik. what did you guys think about kind of the david chome and then the ethereum where we're going in the world and this whole kind of juxtaposition of where we are.
3: Well, yeah. Um, I, my understanding from talking to David at the times so I did, not I don't want to put words in his mouth, is he, he he sounded both optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. He was optimistic that you know people are being clever with technology, but also the the trade off, the, the dual edge or the double edged sword that this technology clearly can be used for uh, malicious means and uh, what's going to keep that in check. Um, And I didn't see that particularly answered by anybody, uh, Mm. at least at this event. Um, I know that he had a chance to talk to Vitalik, but I don't know. I've debriefed either one what they thought about it all. Um, but yeah, the, uh, Ethereum community, uh, just as an aside, uh, definitely had groupies. If you, you, whenever you saw Vitalik walk through, there was a whole flood of people, uh, walking alongside him trying to take photos and trying to just touch him and stuff like that. It was, it was pretty, pretty funny. Um, so yeah, I, I, I can't say, uh, you know, how, um, how, actually maybe we should talk to Jeff, uh, how, how much penetration the Ethereum uh, community has made uh, versus these other uh, cryptocurrencies out here, but yeah, the uh, the David Chom stuff. Uh, uh, it would be great to have him um, as as a guest. I, I, I'm telling you guys to take him on. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm taking notes here.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think. I, it, I mean, it seems like um, it definitely, um, you know. I mean, I think. I think right now the the, the Korean token market is very subdued, um, and. There are, I mean, there are some major pro- Ethereum-based projects like 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 Icon that are that, that are uh, you know getting a lot of momentum here. Um, you know, I think that the you know the develop the, the developer community is is very very large and enthusiastic for for some of the projects that that we're working on. We you know th- this is definitely one of the places that we uh, bring them to to get new developers and, and, and gain traction. Um, you know, there's a, certainly a lot of, a lot of engineering talent out here and, and I think that, you know, and I, I think that, you know, Bitcoin, I mean, we, we all know that it, it, uh, has limited, you know, quite limited functionality and I think, you know, remittances and, and so forth were, were, uh, a big part of what was driving demand, uh, before, but I think that inventing really, you know, really clever, um, really, really clever applications is, is, is the next phase. And, and I can see that people are much more focused on that, uh, than in the past. It's, it's, you know, it's less the, the freewheeling casino and, and, and more about innovation. So, you know, so, so coming to this place for, you know, for, uh, here in other parts of Asia to, uh, to, to introduce new technologies and, uh, get, you know, get developers, uh, you know, cracking on on, on various platforms is, uh, you know, that's a, that's a high priority for us now.
4: Yeah, I mean, I've never been super involved in the Ethereum community. Uh, and so this was one of the first times that I actually kind of witnessed up close over an extended period of time, sort of that whole thing with Vitalik. John's
3: and wearing an Ethereum hat and an Ethereum yeah. shirt right yeah. now. Yeah. and He's turned into a big
4: big shill at this stage. literally can't you know, stop talking <laughs> yeah. about Ethereum. I took off my, my Centra hat. <laughs> um, but the uh, So so that was interesting to witness. But it, And it was clear, it's very clear there's not a lack of capital. And it's very clear there's not a lack of good intentions. And it does seem obviously that there are a number of structures being set up around that community, whether it's consensus or the foundation or the alliance or, you know, whatever else is, is kind of being built around that. And so it would be very interesting to see sort of how that plays itself out and, you know, what applications actually come from all of that effort. Um, but it was it was very interesting to witness. And, you know, look, I have zero thoughts about whether Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash is better. I just really don't care. But, and I talked a little bit about this during my talk, the governance thing in Bitcoin is a problem. And the community issues that that Bitcoin has you know, continue to be a problem. So especially if you're talking about, you know, making sort of this open financial system, in whatever way that means to you, you know, Ethereum, for, for the shortcomings that it certainly does have, I think, has a really good, at least centralized governance process, right? Like, you have, like, this group of people, and they seem to be positive And like, be aligned on the same things, where, you know, the Bitcoin crowd tends to be a little more, maybe in that classic kind of crypto anarchist, you know, sort of uh, phase that we talked about earlier. So that, that's very interesting to witness, just like the differences between those two communities, because one seems super positive, super aligned, and, you know, well-intentioned. Um, and then the Bitcoin community just can't seem to stop fighting with each other.
2: And I think of that some some of that goes back to what Tim was saying, as far as you know, uh, Vitalik's following, and, and a few of the a few of the other uh, the new other currencies like you know like Zcash and so forth. They they have they have a governance structure and a figurehead and and someone to sort of set the tone. Uh, you know, as whereas you know you have this um, you know you know this this non governance model in, in, in Bitcoin where no one is responsible for anything right. and you don't really have a a crowd ethos except to sort of like a, a slug it out. Um, you know, as, uh, you know, know, Roger and Samson did, uh, uh, as we, as we mentioned the opening comments, Um, you know, but just further to, to uh, the development of the space, this is, uh, um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I look at it like this, um, you know, blockchain would probably be a technology that was in a laboratory somewhere if it weren't about money. The fact that people are actually incentivized to do it is something that's brought it out of the lab. Uh, really quickly, and so it's it's, it's developing. It, it, it's it's developing very rapidly on that basis. just because you, know, you know money attract attracts people, it attracts corporations. And uh, so you know we'll see how many more years we can say that it's still early days, but you know it is it is still very early days. So you know, um, so as far as you know which applications are actually out there in the wild and doing innovative things and creative new incentive models, um you know that those are you know they're out there and there's a lot of proposals for that but they're very much in their in in the na- their nation phases um you know so so when we actually when we'll actually see uh you know sort of like you know killer apps beyond crypto kitties i think we're that that's sort of open to uh open to interpretation um but it, but it is mo- but it is moving quickly and 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 uh you know so i so i would expect something is something above and beyond crypto kitties certainly within the next year definitely well, guys, thank you very much for coming on. Um, can you tell us, tell everybody listening where they can find out a bit more about you? Uh, sure. We are uh, elementgroup.com. And on Twitter? Uh, Elementgroup.
4: <laughs> nice. Easy. Uh, this is redflag.com. And then follow me on Twitter, John Collins. Um, yeah, it's, it's
3: PitchTokenClassic.com. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Actually, probably somebody's going to squat that and make a lot of money. We should uh, probably buy that before this comes we, out. We should definitely yeah. buy it before it comes out. Um, so uh, my website's OfNumbers.com. Um, my company's Post Oak Labs, And you could follow me on Twitter at OfNumbers as well.
1: Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Alrighty, thanks very much to Tim, Greg, and John. And of course, thank you, GSAS himself, Colin G. Platt. Where can people find out more about you?
1: On on the Twitter, at Colin G. Platt, unless that gets taken over and then find me at at Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, also, wait, why don't you own a Twitter handle for Fields yet? At Colin G. Platt near a field, at Colin G. Platt GSAS. Because
1: Petra squatted them all
0: okay right let's let's make those a thing um and i have to thank the production team here at 11fs laura our, our producer laura watkins um terence our, our editor and our assistant producer petra who managed to uh, get through the show notes unbelievably with not a minute to spare kudos to you sir as a reminder, 11FS is the company that brings you this podcast. We're a challenger uh, agency and consultancy who help you or anybody with a challenge in blockchain to achieve more. If you want to understand how you're going to get this stuff live, if you're going to commercialize a blockchain project or where regulators' heads are at maybe, um, just uh, or even have a speaker for your next event, we hope you're going to get in touch um, at 11FS.com. Uh, and thank you uh, if you're just listening, if you like what we do. Uh, please reach out at Insider, um or um, podcasts at 11FS.com. And if you like what we do, leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews really, really help us. Spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues to listen too. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye. But without you. But without me? No, I'll be gone forever. <laughs> yes, I am going traveling next week. You'll be in the good, good hands of Colin and many, many others. Goodbye.